0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 46.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working
0: class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 46 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Audio Technica and Universal Audio. Hello from Lafayette, California. have got a great show for you today. I've got Matt Wallace on. If you are a fan of Faith No More, you will be thrilled to hear this interview, which I'm very excited to have Matt on. We've, we've been texting all week, just, you know, trying to hook up as far as uh, time and schedules and such. It's, it's been a bit of a challenge, and uh, he's been very patient and really excited to have him on. So, Matt Wallace coming up. Hey, AES just finished in New York. I hope those of you that went had a great time. I hope you saw some cool new stuff. That's always exciting with any new trade show that uh, goes on, you know, NAM, AES, Music Mesa. Um, just seeing new stuff. Love to go over to Gear Sluts and, of course, hit the new product alerts. There is a, um, a subdirectory for under new product alerts for, actually, I think, I don't even think it's under new product alerts. It's actually in the top level. You can go see uh, all new announcements made at AES, so be sure to check that out. Go over to Gearsluts.com for that. Yeah. So uh, I have a little treat for you today in terms of our sponsors. I told you, you know, bringing on Universal Audio, one of the one of the companies that uh, sponsors the podcast, what I always what I love about uh, Universal Audio is the people that work over there. And in an effort to really just, you know, put a little bit of a more personal perspective on it so that you understand one of the reasons that, I'm really into their products uh, and into the company is uh, to bring on one of the people that work there. And uh, we're going to have on uh, Lev Perry from Universal Audio here shortly. We're going to do short, just a short little snippet interview just to uh, ask Lev a few questions and get an idea of what it is he does and a little insight into Universal Audio and how they work. And I thought that the, having him on is going to be uh, kind of fun. And I'm going to have other people on in the future and I hope you enjoy that. So uh, let's jump right into that, into my call here with Le- Lev Perry on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, Matt. What's up, buddy? Good day. How are you?
2: I'm doing just fine. It's good to see your face. You got a little bit of a goat going. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, first of all, welcome welcome to the show, and and I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be on here. I know that you got a job to do. You, no can't, you can't just be sitting around talking on the internet all day. So... Tell tell people on the show what is it? What do you do there?
2: So yeah, I run product management for Universal Audio. Uh, it's a very deep, dark job of multiple roles, multiple multiple hats are worn. I, I manage a, a group of product managers, and we all have sort of different disciplines, whether it be you know hardware design, uh, analog uh, software, be that sort of GUI or Uh, algorithmic, you know, ears listening. So that's sort of the product development side of things. You know, we're, we're intimately involved with engineering. And the coolest part about Universal Audio is how, you know, engineering driven it is with regards to, you know, some of the innovations that we've been able to come out with the last couple of years. But, you know, we're also very customer driven in that, you know, everything that we do, we try to know, see what's going on with the market, see what's going on with customers, see what's going on with the competition. And we just, we try to, you know, put out the best stuff that we can, you know, whether it be something that we have in the market that people want us to improve. That's really the cool thing about, you know, having a software-based platform Mm -hmm. uh, updated with new plugins, new functionality. And, you know, the UAD platform has just evolved immensely uh, over the last couple of years, you know, from, you know, being, you know, DSP for, for plugins all the way into, Apollo interfaces and software that, you know, makes it easy for people to record with plugins with no latency. But that's, you know, that's what I do. I sort of, you know, take everything I can into account and try to, uh, you know, help the organization figure out what to do next. And yeah, it's a really fun job. And, you know, we've got great customers. So I think, you know, they're always telling us what we should do. And we try and figure, you know, again, how to make everything sort of resonate the best way for all of those different factors. You know, our, our engineers are, you know, as, as passionate as any customer about what we should be making. So we have to sort of balance out all the different opportunities, all the different cool things that we know would just be awesome to do. And, uh, you know, we try and make that reflect in every release. You know, we want it to be something that we just feel totally awesome about, you know. So even as as recent as our last release, you know, the, the AKG uh, BX20 was, you know, a multi-year project that we all just knew, man, if we could get this thing out the door, this thing will just be awesome. And it, and it really has been. And all, again, it's been a, a customer request thing and an internal drive to do. Uh, that product, but it took a long, long time.
0: When I met you initially, I think you were at Avid before this. But
2: yeah, I started out as a product specialist. You know, I was a musician, a recording engineer, probably like most people listening. Yeah, I got uh, I got lucky. I found a, a product specialist role at DigiDesign and I traveled the West Coast for many years. uh, And that's where I really got my feet wet with, you know, Pro Tools, high-end audio recording, because there was always this fascinating intersection at Design between sort of high-end music production and then cutting-edge digital. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I, I worked in, you know, as a product specialist for a couple years. And then I got really passionate about what the product should do. So I was really, you know, dissatisfied with certain areas of what Pro Tools did. So I went to work in product management to try and make make a difference there because i felt you know again i i've been a customer i had a lot of interaction with customers just literally listening to directly what they wanted and then i would actually pass that information along as like very detailed written uh you know descriptions of what the the new feature should be and then yeah it turned out that one of the product managers there had used my uh my write-up as the definition that he gave to engineering to build so uh, kind of got an idea that I could do uh, the product management thing. Not to say that that's all it takes. You know, it was my first inkling that that would be something I would enjoy doing. And so, yeah, I worked at design for almost four years in product management, working on, you know, versions of Pro Tools 6, 7, and 8. And uh, yeah, I left in 2010 to come to Universal Audio. Yeah, it's been it's been really great working at UA because it sort of took that initial thing that I enjoyed about Ah, uh, digital design—sort of the you know the digital cutting edge and the, the high-end music production—but then took it to a whole new level with regards to the lineage of the brand and uh, you know just just really that sort of history going all the way back to the the birth of modern recording with Bill Putnam Sr. Uh, it's been really amazing to work for Bill Jr. because he really carries that same sort of uh, ideology into. What we do today. And so, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been really a, a great ride so far.
0: UA is a pretty small company, isn't it?
2: It is. I mean, especially, you know, we're growing, but especially when I started, I mean, we were around 50 people, which, you know, is you know, big for some companies. It was nothing compared to and still is nothing compared to the likes of a company like Avid uh, or some of the bigger music companies in our industry but you know we've uh, you know we're, we're still uh, we're still on the grow and we're still finding a need for more people so you know we're we're hiring in some areas to try and and bolster up uh, our, our our engineering sales and marketing and product management resources but yeah you know we definitely operate in small teams you know every project that comes out i think people imagine we're like there must be 50 people working on this giant thing it's like no one guy designed you know the analog subsystem you know maybe you know two guys did some of the software we've got two driver guys we you know we've got a couple of algo guys um you know we definitely have a lot of engineers and and whatnot but we don't have like fleets and fleets of uh programmers and double E's, you know, we're definitely, you know, nimble and quick. That's that's our, our sort of ethos. We want to make sure that we're able to, um, you know, have people own something and, you know, drive it to completion, but also not get bogged down with like, oh, well, it's going to take, you know, this guy to do like this one little thing. We try to have people be, you know, as holistic as we can when it comes to development.
0: And you guys are located uh, where?
2: We're in Scotts Valley, California. So just north of Santa Cruz, you know, the company used to be in Santa Cruz. It actually started out of Bill Jr.'s Basement garage, what have you, like a lot of uh, like a lot of tech companies, I suppose, yeah <laughs> uh, but uh yeah we're we're up in the beautiful mountains of Scotts Valley. The weather here is seemingly always lovely, even when the rest of the uh the surrounding bay area is not, and uh yeah, it's a great environment to be up, We're in the redwoods, so it's it's quite a place to be, and uh you know we moved to Scotts valley, you know, two point oh we're in this in this new office about two years ago, and we were in another technology park uh, in Scotts Valley a few years ago. And you know, this new place has been great because we've been able to build out a world-class studio. Uh, we've always had manufacturing of all of our um, legacy analog gear on site. So we have a, a nice warehouse downstairs where we build LA-2As, 1176s, 610s, uh, and those types of products. And and mo- most of the uh, Apollo products that we sell actually do come back here for a full QA test cycle and validation, you know, the same kind of burn-in regiment that we would have for a piece of analog gear. So, you know, we've, we've got a, a lot of onshore um, manufacturing and uh, and warehousing. So it's, it's a, it's a pretty cool place. Um, you know, we've done a couple of videos sort of cataloging our, our new building and especially our new studio. The It's called Studio 610, sort of modeled after uh, some of the original Bill Putnam senior rooms uh, in LA. So yeah, it's been, it's been really great to see that evolve.
0: I've been to the, you know, I'm, I've only been in the new building once and I've been in the studio. And in fact, uh, <laughs> I came down there to 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 hang out and have lunch with will uh will shanks one day and uh he was like oh you know what i gotta jump in a meeting so i just i sat in the uh in the studio playing drums for like an hour oh. i had my phone and a pair of headphones and i just jammed along to some songs and it's a beautiful studio and I assume that it's it's nice for you guys to have a functioning, good studio there so you can actually really test out some of the ideas and products you're working on.
2: Definitely. We've, you know, we've always had uh, decent listening rooms, um, you know, going back, you know, to uh, our, our older buildings. But I would say now we've got a great listening, uh, two listening rooms, two great listening rooms. And yeah, the big difference for us is really having, you know, a proper vocal booth and a proper live room. So everything is wired. Uh, as you would expect uh, in a pro facility. And yeah, I mean, the majority of what it gets used for is product development. So, you know, we're testing, you know, plugins, algorithms, hardware, Apollos, you know, tracking bands, tracking individual artists, uh, and then of course, a bunch of other cool new products. So, you know, the idea that we've got, you know, at the very top of the the pyramid, like a great environment, you know, it sort of trickles down nicely to, uh, you know, where I might use the gear that we make, like in my own sort of bedroom studio uh, or whatnot. But yeah, so it's great. Uh, definitely from a, you know, just having that, it, I think it's elevated the quality of our products, you know, in the last two years even. So.
0: And as far as uh, challenges, what's, what's probably the top challenge, and, and when I say challenge, a challenge that you embrace, not like, oh my God, this is a pain in the ass challenge, but... What's a challenge that you embrace as far as the products are concerned?
2: I mean, there's tons. I mean, obviously we have this embarrassment of riches when it comes to ideas, right? So uh, one of the hardest things for a product manager or anybody running a company is, you know, just making sure that you're taking all the ideas into account and really trying to apply some sort of uh, apples to apples methodology for which one you ought to do. Because, again, our customers are, uh, you know, just as involved as we are in contributing ideas and and thoughts. And, you know, we we really do try and pay attention, uh, you know, to what they say, you know, through all different sorts of channels, be it social media, uh, in-person customer visits, you know, trade shows, what have you. But yeah, I think the biggest challenge is really figuring out what to do next, and then executing it uh, as best we can. You know, we, I get like I said, the the world is moving faster than it's ever moved before, and there's uh, just there's so much information out there, and people make decisions on the turn of a dime, and sort of you know opinions get sort of you know implanted very quickly, and so you know we have to be on our game to. You know make sure that we're just delivering the most potent product offering or uh, you know just you know communicating with people in terms of uh, where we are and why we are where we are because we're trying to we're trying to do a lot of complicated stuff, especially when you talk about keeping you know up to date with the latest operating systems on Mac and Windows uh, when you try and talk about delivering features across the platform where maybe we've had to make decisions to. Uh, deliver, uh, you know, functionality on one platform only, like we've been doing for the last couple of years with Thunderbolt. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, those, those are sort of uh, the, the things that come to mind most obviously. And, you know, from a technological standpoint, the ironic thing is that the most challenging stuff we do is, you know, with, with everything that we design, period. I mean, we're always pushing the ball forward with regards to uh, algorithm design. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, that's the most, uh, I would say, impressive thing that we do. The fact that we can design something that will take your Apollo, which is a totally world-class, pristine, mastering-grade converter, but then you can make it sound like a tape machine that was built 40 years ago or a tube preamplifier made 60 years ago. Um, And the fact that that can become a part of the sound, like those are the challenging things that our company does. And I think does better than anybody personally, but again, I'm heavily biased.
0: Oh, of course. But, yeah. Well, I mean, the Apollo is an impressive ecosystem unto itself. It's, it's a very definitely. powerful tool I will say. Um, and I'm very proud owner of, 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 the system and I totally dig it. So awesome! what is your favorite product that you're most proud of, whether that's an analog product, the Apollo, a plugin, Like what, if I made you pick one thing to be into, like, what do you think is like, since you know all the backstory of everything and you see it out there in the marketplace, what is the the coolest product to you?
2: It's a really tough one. Uh, You know, I've put out, you know, almost 20 hardware products and been involved with at least 50 software releases at this point in my career. Not that I'm keeping direct count, but that sounds about right if I'm thinking about it in real time. Apollo really is, for me, I think the most the most impressive. Like you said, the ecosystem part of it is is just really cool. Even going back to the days when I was at Digi, and even if I think back further to to when I was working at like a music store, like my first job in music was working at a a retailer. You know, I always remember thinking like, wow, these these plugins are someday going to get to the point where they actually can, you know, replace hardware. And back then, I don't think it was happening. And even in the earliest days of the digital design, I think, you know, it was awesome, but it wasn't like, you know, you could do a double-blind listening test with the real hardware and a plugin, and you either couldn't tell the difference and, you know, for all intents and purposes, you might choose the plugin as being better sounding. Uh, I think that's what Universal Audio uh, and, you know, Bill's original vision of what Universal Audio in the current form uh, was going to mean. That to me, combined with Apollo, and then therefore what you can get out of just even an Apollo twin, uh, is kind of mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. And just to hear it like parroted back, you know, um, you know, I was talking to a world-class engineer just a couple weeks ago, and he was basically telling me that he had done a real shootout. He has an API legacy console, you know, an LA2A, and so he's using the you know the the, the 212 that's in there uh, with the LA2A. He's tracking that to Pro Tools, and then he did the exact same test using our API Vision Console and an LA-2A uh, emulation inside the Apollo Twin, and you couldn't tell the difference. So those types of things are, um, you know, when it's one thing to say like, okay, well, I'm a you know engineer, I'm on a budget, and this is what I can afford. But then it's another thing for a guy basically with unlimited, you know, resources with regards to the gear he can use tell you that, you know, this product that you make that is, again, affordable and, and you know, in that sort of spinning distance of, oh, yeah, I can actually get that in my studio. It's as good as the thing that might cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and be, you know, pulled from a curated list of what a studio might have. So mm-hmm. that to me, like I said, I think that's the most, the thing I'm most proud of. And, you know, again, Apollo to me is a bunch of products, you know, because we started with the original rack mount product. But, you know, at this point, you know, from the first generation, now we've got the next generation of Apollo's. We've got Apollo Twin. You know, we put that technology in a lot of different places, and I think you know that's that to me is the yeah the thing I'm probably most proud of. And I just,
0: uh, as a parting thought, I just want to you know mention what I really like about you is just your passion for it. I remember coming down to uh, pay a visit to you guys, and you were like, "Hey, come here, come check this out." And I came into your office, and you were like, "Let me let me show you what the uh, the the software for Apollo is going to be like." Or this, I don't even remember if the Apollo name was at uh, in play at that moment but I just remember like seeing the look in your eye and how intense you were about it I was like this guy is really into this and I cannot wait to see the end result because you know when you see somebody and I keep referring back to Eric Valentine talking about bringing your a game to anything you do it was clear to me at that moment I was like this is a smart dude bringing his A game, and I just I just want to compliment you. I really think you're you're one of the reasons why I I back UA products is because I know that you're one of many smart people over there, and I know that there's not a bunch of knuckleheads running the show, <laughs> and that thanks. that makes me really happy and and proud to to you know be a, a UA user, and and so
2: thanks man. Na- yeah, I, mean, I I remember that day very clearly. You were actually I think literally one of the first outsiders, if not the first outsider people, meaning not UA employees, to actually see Apollo. I think that was before we had a name for it. and yeah, I mean definitely the, the development of that product was intense because everything about it was completely pushing the boundaries of what we had done before, what the, the the product could do and you know sort of everything about it. And so yeah, you know, thanks for thanks for being a part of that journey cuz definitely, you know, it was some of those first encounters where, you know, as passionate as I was, you know, you could be super passionate about it and it can suck, you know, we see, <laughs> we see products put out all the time, right? So Yeah. Uh, but definitely, I was uh, I was encouraged after your feedback and some of the early feedback that we got from professionals that you know had again just a you know a ton of options and you know people were saying yeah you know this thing could be really cool if you could you know do what you're saying and maybe do a couple of other tweaks and we tried to listen at, at those early stages and that all sort of went into the 1.0 product that that shipped and and it, like you said it's evolved into something uh, you know a bigger and and more interesting I think.
0: Well, this has been fantastic, Lab. I. I... I enjoy speaking with you every time I see you, and it's, I haven't seen you in, in a while, so it's good to see Bye. you. It's good to talk to you, and thanks again for coming on the show and just uh, bringing a little bit of a, uh, a voice and a face to UA, because it's more than just the name, it's the people behind it, and, and I appreciate your time.
2: Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it as well.
0: Awesome. Lev Perry from Universal Audio on WCA. I get a little tongue-tied there. Universal Audio on the Working Class Audio podcast. Yeah, that was cool. Glad to have him on. So um, without further ado, let's jump right into our interview with Mr. Matt Wallace here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Thanks for listening. Well, so here's my official welcome to the podcast. And Thank you. Thanks for being on. I've been angling to get you on for a bit. I, I really uh, definitely have great respect for the work you've done. And Thank you. You're, you're yet another Bay Area guy who's moved to L.A., yep. or Bay Area person, I should say. Yep following in the lines of uh, Eric Valentine and Sylvia Massey. Yep. Your time in the Bay Area, I guess, is where you got involved with Faith No More. Yes. And would it be accurate to say that that launched your career? Uh, well, I think that's the, I mean, that
1: was the biggest launch of my career, but I mean, I did so many cool bands that were up in the Bay Area. I mean, I did about 40 records on 8-track. I mean, I, I did full albums on 8-track, either starting in my parents' garage for the first two years or the... um studio i had out in uh, oakland on fruitvale so uh yeah i mean they're the ones i mean i basically recorded faith no more when they were called sharp young men and they were you know same drummer and bass player but different keyboard player and guitar slash singer uh and then they became faith no man and then faith no more so yeah they were definitely ones that launched me it was one of those things where i'd worked with them from day one from their early demos and you know when they started getting the overtures to be signed to either big time records or slash you know they um had a lot of people kind of clamoring to work with them. And, and fortunately, they were very, very uh, kind to uh, keep me on board because, uh, you know, we did a lot of work together. So, yeah, I mean, they definitely were the the, the big launch. I mean, the, the I guess if you consider We Care a Lot, it's probably like the, the first kind of splash I made in the pond. But then it was actually, after that, I, I did the uh, replacements album, Don't Tell a Soul, then followed literally finished that up, and then like a week later did uh, Faith in the Moor is the Real Thing, so that was a pretty uh, fruitful year in
0: 1988. Wow. Yeah, yeah don't tell a soul. That's uh, that's the one that's got anywhere but here.
1: Yeah, isn't that cool? Oh, God, that's a great <laughs> that's, that's I agree, that's,
0: man. <laughs> that's one of my favorites on that record.
1: Thank you, yeah, I agree. That's a good one. But yeah, so I guess, yeah, I mean, yeah, Faith in the More definitely launched. I mean, for me, I, I go back to a band called B-Team, who were uh, a band that were kind of modeled after Gang of Four and stuff like that, and that was my first kind of quote-unquote smaller launch where they actually were um nominated for a bammy you know when they had a bay-, bay area music oh yeah up there and i'd done them and i recorded them in my parents garage so that was like for me that personally was my first kind of like hey i might be able to kind of do this uh for a living or you know maybe i know what i'm doing kind of thing so that was for me in a smaller way that was the first kind of launch and then of course after that yeah faith the no more certainly mm-hmm. was the the biggest splash with the song epic so that was the the thing that kind of really got me on the radar
0: know that you've done several records but one big standout for you is the debut from maroon five
1: yes apparently by the way a musician programmer friend of mine i guess two days ago told me that uh, howard stern had adam levine on i guess he uh mentioned me he also talked about the idea of making a record like that first one which would be pretty fantastic and actually a couple of years ago i'd actually gone to their manager saying like hey it'd be a good time to you know, because Maroon Five's got quite a bit of power now, and they've got a big presence. They could actually kind of go off the track and not do the, you know, relatively processed pop stuff, and kind of go back to where they started from. And um, but at the time, that wasn't uh, met with a lot of enthusiasm, at least by the manager. But it sounds like Adam's starting to talk uh, about doing that kind of record again.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So we'll see. How do you? I don't know. It's it's interesting coming from the Bay Area. What what did you? And moving down to LA. First of all, yep. why did you, why did you move?
1: Uh, well, because honestly, I was tired of doing demos for bands. that would ultimately go to L.A. and then they'd get a quote-unquote big name producer to to you know make records. And there was actually a band called Legal Reigns I'd worked with for quite a long time. It was a three piece power trio. Did all this really cool recording. Made some really terrific sounding uh, demos that could have ultimately been released. And then they got I guess Tim Palmer. Oh, they were signed to Arista, which you know in retrospect wasn't the best place to sign to a rock for a rock band. But um, so Tim Palmer was going to produce. Uh, so first I was going to produce it. Like yeah, we're going to get signed. Oh, we got signed. You know, so because I we. I'll drink champagnes like woo. We're gonna make a record, you know. It's like great, and then I get a phone call. Well, they want Tim Palmer to do it, but you can engineer. I was like, oh, okay. that's not ideal, but okay, I'll do that. And of course, a week later, well, Tim has got his own engineer, so you're not working on the record. And so I just that was kind of the big thing for me, where I just said, you know, I'm either gonna just get out of this racket and get into something else, like you know, real estate or something. Or I'm gonna go to to um, LA and try to really make a take a stab at it, you know. And uh, so that's what I did. I, I got you know signed on to work at Slash Records as a staff producer and. uh a&R guy. And, you know, I mean, I kind of want to think that my move to L.A. is what did it. But honestly, it was the Faith and the More record, which was a band I'd already worked with from the Bay Area. So I could have technically stayed in the Bay Area, I guess, in retrospect. But for me, the advantage to, to go into a place like L.A. is that I think it's, it's, for lack of a better term, the bar is set a little bit higher and it's kind of big time. Because when you move to L.A., you're you're either going to make it or you're going to fail miserably. And then you got to go back home with your tail between your legs. And so, so I really needed that push to say, okay, am I really going to do this for a living or is this just a fucking hobby? Am I going to just, you know, just kind of, you know, piddle along with it? So I just had, I just kind of did the move and it was just uh, I mean, there's uh LA is definitely not my favorite place. I mean, I've been living here for 20, probably almost 25 years now. And I never, ever imagined I would live here more than two years, but, uh, but I will say there's an energy every time I'd come here, there's an energy where I just felt like, you know, you don't, people don't mess around. Like when you get to LA, it's like, you know, there it's time, it's go time and I, and, then even I remember at the time and this is this is really off topic, but I remember at the time there was a, we had the big earthquake in San Francisco mm-hmm. and it wasn't wasn't too many years later, we had the big earthquake in LA. LA rebuilt their infrastructure within a couple of years. And I remember ten years after the uh, San Francisco earthquake, they were still messing around with trying to build a freeway or fix something. It's like, you know, LA's got it some, you know, pretty big negatives as far as I'm concerned, but I will say that they just kind of get crap done, you know, in a weird way. Uh, personally, I'd much rather live in the Bay Area. I think that that's where my family lives, that's where my mom and sister and brother live. I'd much prefer to live in the Bay Area. I like the aesthetic there, I like everything about it, but I just found I didn't I didn't think I could make a living at it up there, and so I had to kind of make the big jump and And literally, I thought I'd move to LA for two years, you know, quote unquote, make it big and then move back to the Bay Area and then kind of, you know, keep that momentum going, but you know, the advantage of LA is that, that every band comes through here, and so anytime someone wants to meet with you or you want to meet with them, it's like, hey, we're playing in town, you want to meet up? Yeah, let's do it, so It's really, for me, the place to um, work, and having worked in San Francisco, which I love working at, and in Vancouver, and Nashville, and New York, I can honestly say, hands down, L.A. crushes all those cities in terms of available uh, studios and available ancillary staff. Like, If you want to rent a specific old vintage amp, Three guys will come pounding on your door. How about this one? You know, and 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 seriously, <laughs> I mean the support here, because when I was in New York, it was really shocked when I just wanted like a couple of rack pieces of gear and like, oh yeah, we gotta, oh yeah, we're dream hire. we gotta go get that out of Nashville, have you in a couple of days? It's like, dude, I'm only asking for like kind of like regular stuff, you know. It wasn't even that that crazy. And um and I mean same thing with musicians, but literally, I mean, guys down here that rent gear, you can say, I want, I want Hendrix's exact. Fuzz face pedal he used at Woodstock, and two guys will say, "I got both of them." Come on, you know, can, can we bring them over? Uh, I think it's just kind of high pressure, and people just realize that that you got to really be on top of your game, and that's how that's how it's done, you know. And um, again, great place to live for work. You know, I'd rather have my family up in the Bay Area, you know, obviously hands down. But I will say that uh, you know the move I think has proved to be fruitful. But I will say now that I, I'll backpedal a whole bunch. When I was doing stuff with B Team and these bands in my parents' garage, I had no idea what a producer did. I had no idea that you can make a living at it. And I was actually going to UC Berkeley to be an English teacher. And so I was going to school full-time and then student teaching, ninth grade students. And then also, you know, I'd go to school Tuesdays and Thursdays in my senior year, then I'd make records all the other days in my parents' garage. So I just was, loved music and I was just doing, I had no idea what a producer did. I didn't know that you could actually make a living at it. It just didn't even enter my head. And I just kind of did it, lived on ramen noodles, you know, <laughs> shared a, I had a one bedroom apartment that my girlfriend had and then she, she left. And so my friend John moved in for like, quote unquote, a couple of months. Like he and I lived in this one bedroom place for like three years. Like he's sleeping in the living room. I'm sleeping in the bedroom and you know, you know, cause we were just poor, you know, I mean, I, I was scrounging for my half of the $330 a month rent, you know, because I was, I was so invested in, you know, I built a studio in Oakland. I put all my money into gear and building the place out and working and, you know, I guess it's they're called your salad days where I just but it's really more of the ramen noodle days where I just ramen you know, noodles. Yeah. But I mean, you know, just you know, just really in it a hundred percent, you know, going to seeing bands, working in music. I I um, kind of taught myself to self-promote. I'd make these uh little, you know, eight by eleven uh things I'd print out that said, you know, eight track recording, twelve dollars an hour. And I would uh go to all the rehearsal rooms in San Francisco and Oakland, I'd stick them up, I'd go to all the record stores, I'd put them everywhere. And I only found out recently That Bill Gould from Faith No More, that's how he found me. He actually was at, I think, Rather Ripped Records or something like that. And he saw my little thing, like, you know, eight track recording, $12 an hour. And he actually brought a band in and then that turned out okay. And so he said, Hey, I got my own band called Sharp Young Man. And and you want to record? It's like, Yeah. But so I would really just learn to kind of like, you know, just try to figure out where, go fishing where the fish are at. Like, you know, stick these things up so people go, Oh, yeah, eight track recording, let's take our band in. So anyway, it's been an amazing journey, but I had no idea what the hell I was doing when I started. And probably still don't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, Tim Palmer was on the show, which is an interesting thing. And my conversation with Eric Valentine, Eric is friends with my friend, John Greenham, who's also been on the show, mastering engineer, who uh, has been in the Bay Area for many years, but ended up moving to LA. Right. And John said, Eric has a great analogy. He says, you know, as far as moving to LA, you know, you can be a hat maker and do you want to be the only hat maker in town or do you want to go to a town where a lot of people make hats and therefore there's a lot of knowledge about hat making and yep. people buy and wear hats? Yep. I, I thought it was a brilliant analogy just in terms of, as you say, it's like go where, go where the fish are yeah. if you want to go fishing. Yeah. Again, it's not, again, on a, like I say on a personal level, it wasn't
1: really my idea to leave the Bay Area because I just love everything about the Bay Area. It really just, I, I was not... Keen on, but I, I, it it happened because I got this job through Slash Records, hired basically hired me, and so that was like okay, well I might as well make the move. They're going to pay me like you know, well they I I subsequently found out that your first deal you always get kind of screwed on, and and they actually I thought I was getting paid forty forty thousand dollars a year. I was actually at forty thousand dollar a year advance, and so every time I do a project, they would take half of my money. So I ultimately paid back thirty five thousand of the forty thousand they paid me. And I cost them five grand to work for them for a year. So <clears throat> that was one of those early learning things like, oh, okay, that's how it works. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, that's just how, I mean, that's just, you know, look, I, I mean, it got me down here and I did it, but it was, uh, it was definitely like, you know, your first deal, you, you definitely get uh, taken advantage of certainly to, uh, to some extent.
0: How convoluted, you know, mm-hmm. and so unnecessarily convoluted, yeah, it seems. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you uh, are a guy who's been in the record business when the record business was the old way of doing right. things and now you're operating in the new record business, uh-huh. what do you think of it? And what have you learned and what do you like and dislike about the new mm-hmm. record business? Okay.
1: Well, for me, the new record business is exactly how it was when I started. When I started, I was the engineer and the producer and the assistant engineer and the janitor. And that's how I ran my studio at my parents' garage and the one in Oakland. Uh, and then, of course, I had years where I hired engineers and I was the producer and I could sit back and, you know, snort blow off the coffee table and drink champagne all day long and bark out orders. But now I'm back to uh, I'm, I'm being humorous, of course. But but, <laughs> um, but anyway, so what I'm back to now is I've got my own studio. I, I put together about 10 years ago because my manager, Frank McDonough, saw the the tide change. And he said, listen, you know, you, you probably want to get your own studio. I said, I don't want my own studio. I, I don't want to have a studio. I did. I didn't want any part of it. He said, listen, budgets are coming down. And if you have your own studio, uh, at least the producer will get paid because this this came from actually a project I was doing for Capital, where <clears throat> he and I were doing the, the budget and you know, they say okay do the budget here's how much we have and I'm 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 not exaggerating I I got to dig this thing up when we did the budget he put it all together we created studio time you know engineer blah 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 producer zero dollars I was like seriously there's zero dollars for me to do this project and I actually considered doing it just for the quote unquote exposure and it was at that time he said listen. Get your own studio. So you're not going to be paying, you know, $550 to $750 a day for studio time because you can get your own place and at least the you as a producer can get paid. So I'm really honestly back to where I started. I am at my own studio. I do all the engineering, producing, mixing, you know, assistant engineering, janitorial, everything. I'm back to kind of where I started. The only difference is I've got a bunch of multi-platinum records hanging out on the wall, but I still gotta clean the toilets and stuff like that. You know, it's just like uh I mean, it, it is what it is. You know, there's a lot more music available, which is really great. It's a lot more available to people to make music in their bedrooms, which I think is fantastic. That's what initially attracted me to semi-pro recording, which is what my Tascam 80-8 was when I started doing uh, records back in the old days. Yeah. You know, because in the old days, they had, you know, it was, it was basically all you had was two-inch 16-track or two-inch 24-track. It was all pro. And then... People like you know Tascam and Fossex came up with the semi-pro stuff, which meant that I could actually envision getting into the business and building my own studio. So to some extent, people are doing that today with their own computers, and that's really cool. The only difference is there's such a deluge of music, it's hard to figure out what to listen to. And that was one of the advantages to having record labels a little more in control things, that they were kind of tastemakers. They can kind of funnel things and, and focus our attention on certain specific acts. They didn't always pick the best acts, but they... At times, nailed it. You know, I mean, you can't argue with record labels picking, you know, Led Zeppelin or Prince or Nina Simone or whoever you want. You know, Joni Mitchell or whatever. I mean, they, 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 you know, or Metallica or whatever bands you like. They did pick some good ones, you know. And it's just a lottery thing where you know they they get uh, one band and hits it big, and then they pay for ten bands that don't. And so there was a bit of a. You know, they were kind of farming music, therefore, which was which was cool. But obviously, they they were spending money like nobody's business, and they were a bunch of high paid guys who were basically getting paid to do nothing. And so, anyway, it's a different business. It, you know, I, here's here's the thing for me. Um, in a nutshell, the biggest change, other than financial change, where where it's obviously we don't get paid nearly as much as we used to in the old days. And you can argue that maybe before we're getting paid too much, might be moments like that. But right now, we're definitely getting paid not enough. But I will say that, um, you know, in the old days you'd be working, you know, if I'd work at A&M studios or, you know, Sunset Sound, the nice thing was that you would go into the hall to, you know, go pee or something and you'd bump into something like, Hey, what are you doing? Oh man, you work working this much. Hey, come on, check this out. You know, and it was, there was a bit, a lot more camaraderie and running into people and kind of seeing what everyone's doing. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, cool, man. That's cool. How you're doing that nowadays. And this is true of everyone that I know, at least all my peers, whether it's Joe Barisi, uh, Sylvia Messi, maybe to a lesser extent, uh, you know, Andrew Sheps, everyone, we're all working by ourselves. You yep. know? we all sit in our own garage or our own little studio. A lot of solitary work. We still do really good work, um, but you don't have people hanging around because you can't afford to have an engineer or have a tech or whatever. You're just like you're by yourself. And oftentimes I end up playing stuff on records because, you know, can't afford to hire somebody. And so I'll muddle through it, but it's just not the. Uh, what's the phrase that we used to say? Oh yeah, the money and the fun has been sucked out of the business, and that's really, that's really, <laughs> that's really what's happened. I mean, but the fun in in terms of you know interpersonal interactions with other peers, that's the thing that's has really been taken away. I mean, we st- I still have great moments with tremendous artists. For me, it's always been fiercely creative, no matter what the money's doing. I have just moments of working with people like, man, I cannot believe I'm in a room with someone who's really got something to say. Uh, they have a point of view, and they're fully invested in what they're doing, and it is absolutely a thrill. I've been doing this for thirty-three years now, and it still have moments like God, that's amazing. You know, you hear these things, and it's really invigorating and a thrill. But, uh, but I will say, financially, you know, last year was my honestly it was my worst year financially in about twenty years. Last year was just horrible. This oh, year, man. yeah, this year is going really good. So.
0: Well, as you know, or maybe you don 't know i don 't know if you 've listened to the other podcast, but you know we um we do talk finances we don 't talk too much about gear as as uh, a lot of others do and a lot right. of other interviews right so this is this is actually really good information you're you 're giving us here but I'm curious with—first of all, I'd like to hear about your studio in terms yes. of its size, and then I'd like to hear, like, if you're working with uh, with bands like on the level of Maroon 5 and Faith No More, Right. obviously you have a deep history with Faith No More, so I think yes. that that's a little different. But newer bands that maybe—let's say Maroon 5. Let's say Maroon right. 5 came back to you and said, all right, we want to do another record like the debut— Right. Uh, would you work with them out of your current studio? Uh,
1: I would certainly do all the overdubs here in a heartbeat. And, and if I was invited to mix it, I'd mix it here too. It just for me, uh, that the, I really still prefer uh, a large room to track drums in. Actually, specifically, I like a small, acoustically non-ambient room to put the drums in with a door that opens up into a bigger room. And so I like very very di- uh, dry acoustic uh, drums. And then I like a big room that I can kind of pull in the uh, ambience as I want it, but I don't like tracking them in a large room. And so for me, that's the only thing I would do with a band like Maroon 5 or whomever. I I just, you know, we we do pre-production at some rehearsal place, get our, our ideas together, then go to a big studio, track the drums, and then um, come to my place to overdub, you know. And also with Maroon 5, I mean, I I'd started this thing with recording bands with uh, monitor wedges instead of using headphones, which I did on that record and it's a really uh, exciting way to make records where people don't have to kind of fumble with their headphones and they feel a little bit more like they're playing a, a kind of a intimate live show or they're in a rehearsal room. So you don't, it just has, there's a nice feel to it. And I really enjoy doing that kind of thing. And and I per- much prefer the interaction of a band playing live. I, there are moments that, uh, that happen. Like I do this thing called live at studio deluxe at my, at my studio here and we record bands live and, and there's no overdubs, no editing, nothing. And man, those are the best moments I've, I've had in, in decades, where you just sit in a room and they're playing live. It is live, live, live. And we pick which take and that's it. And we've done, you know, pop bands, rock bands, heavier bands. And it's just like, man, this is a band playing in the moment, singing. And those are the best moments I've had where you just go, this is live. It's, yeah. It's, how, uh, you know. how big is Studio Deluxe? Studio Deluxe is approximately 900 to 1,000 square feet, um, not particularly large. Uh, the large, the largest room I have, is, it uses up probably a good, uh, maybe two thirds of the space, or maybe maybe not that much. But uh, is the control room, which is a, it's a good sized control room, uh, with a bunch of couches. Because my whole idea has 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 always been from day one, is to basically have a large living room, that's got a bunch of instruments in it, and that just happens to be recording studio. So it's it's a really good sized room. I've got a like an eight by eight ISO room in it. Uh, I've got like a little. Uh, eating air out front. That's like our lounge. I've got a an ice room that's my quote unquote big ice room, but that's like, you know, 12 by 12 or something like that. But it's a room within a room. And then I've got a couple rooms in the back. I've got a guitar room that's all kind of lead lined and, you know, just kind of really isolated so you can put big amps in there and make a lot of noise. Then I've got a vocal room. So I've got one, two, three, I got four ISO rooms. And I actually could tr- track a band live in here with no bleed at all if I wanted. Unfortunately, the uh, the uh, there's not much visual communication going up between any of the rooms except for the one ice room i've got my control room but um so yeah it's just a big room and just really comfy man it's got a lot of vibe people love working in here it's got a bunch of you know hippie tapestries all over the place got a bunch of buddhas and asian influence stuff and it's just got a nice uh,
0: feel to it is it a house or is it an industrial building it's in an industrial building and
1: interestingly to your listeners it is Directly across the parking lot from the former Sound City recording studio. Ah, yeah. So, because I used to work at Sound City all the time, and uh, and when I was looking for a place, I spoke to uh, uh, Tom and Sandy who owned the Sound City complex, and uh, you know, just say, "Hey, I'm looking for a place." And this was actually a, a rehearsal room that was called Full Blast Rehearsal that I'd actually used five years prior to rehearse a band. In. It was just a big open room. I did all the build out. My friend Jeff and I did the build out. So it was a big open room with with a, basically a bathroom. And then I uh, got it and built it out and started, you know, making records. I, in fact, I started recording it before I built it out. I used guitar cases, guitar trunks for like, you know, ISO. I'd stick a little amp in there and use that for ISO because I just basically moved in and started working, uh, and then built it out.
0: If I may ask, do you rent or do you own?
1: Oh, I rent. Yeah, rent, okay. rent, rent. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I, you know, perfect world probably could have owned, maybe, but uh, uh-huh. at the time I built this, it was right uh after maroon five was out but it hadn't gained the momentum that it did and so i wasn't like completely flush with money at the time so so i just uh yeah i just rented it and um yeah so it's, it's I, th- I think
0: jo- yeah i think joe joe barisi rents as well um yes yeah he does er- eric owns his stu- eric valentine owns right. his place right interesting that, about you and eric mm-hmm. is that you both essentially got your breaks from bay area bands oh yeah 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 he, he had third eye blind he He had third eye blind and Smash Mouth simultaneously. Oh wow! Yeah, a name that just keeps coming up in these interviews is Frank McDonough. Yeah, you know, Andrews with him. Sylvia was with him. Yep. Ross Hogarth, I think, just signed with him. Yeah, and Joe Barisi's with him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe I should have Frank. I should have Frank McDonough on.
1: You know what? That would be a really, really interesting interview. You should definitely talk to him. first of all, he's a musician, and he he plays guitar. Then he got he worked at Arista Records for quite a few years, and then I've actually worked, he and I worked together for, I think, 20 or 21 years. I've been with him, I think, probably longer than pretty much anyone, and so we've been through the ups and downs of all kinds of stuff, and uh, I think his perspective would be pretty fascinating to your listeners, because he comes from a point where he's got a stable of, I think, 12 to 14 uh, producer-engineer mixers, and uh, he can certainly tell you what the business is like, because he'll probably, you know, mirror what I'm going to say. And that is in the old days, you would spend a day or two discussing a project like, okay, what's, what's the deal memo? What's the points, blah, 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 you know, and what's the schedule. And then, then you'd spend two or three months working. Nowadays, you spend about a day, uh, getting the deal together and you spend a day or two working and that's it. I mean, it's just really weird where he puts in tremendous hours to, um, you know, accommodate all this stuff, all the, you know, the agreements and things like that. And, uh, I just think that per agreement, he's making way less money than he used to. You know, he, used to, he, used to, he didn't spend this kind of time trying to put things together because the money is much lower and people, you know, want to you know have less to spend and they still want great sounding records. So the thing that is that, yeah, it still has to sound like a great record, no matter whether you spent, you know, a dollar or a, a million dollars on it. You know, people, you, you can't tell everyone, oh, well, we didn't have a whole lot of money. It's like, no, it's got to sound great. So
0: maybe you could put in a good word for me.
1: I will. Yeah. I think he would be fascinating. I mean, he's got a, Tremendous overview. He's been in the business for quite a long time. He's seen the changes, and he, uh, I think, has always been pretty uh, on point in terms of, like, he was the one who said, you know, put together my studio. He's seen a lot of the stuff coming. He's the one who said, man, this thing, Spotify, is going to be the the wave of the future, I think. I think it's going to be all about subscription stuff, and he's pretty pretty uh, smart and pretty articulate. I think that'd be a uh, fascinating talk. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, shoot, me, shoot me an email after we're done talking and, and just Mention it, and I'll forward it to him. Say, hey Frank, want to check this out?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In terms of the economics of record making and and, and where you're at, uh, you know, just I'm taking a broad overview here, and that yes. broad overview is is you're a family guy, right? You have yep. kids. Yep. You're in the, the the new record business, we'll say, and you have your own studio. Yes. And something that really caught my attention the other day when we were uh, trying to hook up, and you said, "Oh, dude, I I dismantled my studio, or yes. I, I sold my board." Yep and I'm putting my studio back together before I start recording with this band from Japan. Yep. And I was like, oh, he got rid of his board. Uh, did you get a new board or did you, have you changed your workflow?
1: That, that board's a really interesting story. It's, it's a sound workshop that I'd purchased years ago for my studio and I had it. And then I, then once we got more kind of entrenched in pro tools, I actually sold it to a guy named Paul Figueroa because by the name of Fig, he's a tremendous uh, engineer mixer guy. And uh, so I sold it to him. And I was doing my Pro Tools thing. And I got this, you know, Pro Control surface, and then uh, and then I bought it back from him like three or four years ago, maybe four or five, and used it, and then actually just sold it back to him about about two weeks ago. So I got rid of the thing, and you know, it's just the the imprint is too big for the studio. I don't use it that much. Um, I used to mix through it, but I found it being kind of a kind of woolly. But I mixed all kinds of things through it. Um, uh, but I just uh, didn't want. I wanted more space in my control room. I also wanted. Uh, I've got a bunch of other outboard preamps and things like that. I got tons of junk, so I didn't really need the board. And it just. I guess it just looks a little more modern these days, just to have the darn racks of gear and the computer, and not have the board. I mean, if it was a really cool board, like an API or maybe a Neve, then or an SSL, that that would have some cachet. Might be kind of cool. Might be useful. But um, and nowadays, you know, I, I can't. I can't use it even. From mixing, I would just leave it static, because I can't, you know, I'm not going to do a recall on it. So I just, uh, I was using it as a through device, you know, and um, and so I just figured, yeah, I'm not going to do that. So I just got rid of it, and uh, yeah, so uh, com- completely rewired the whole damn place. And I pulled every single wire apart. Here it was just like,
0: uh well, that's always fun.
1: Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I like it now. It's, it's. I mean, you look. I, okay, here's this. Here's the thing. The reason I pulled it out is that after having my own after. Working on my own for about two or three years, because I don't I don't hire engineers anymore like I used to, just because of budgetary constraints. I finally came to the realization that I'm a one man production facility, and it and it took me a while to kind of come to terms with that. And so once I did, I said, okay, I need to set up my studio so that I can actually make my workflow easier, because I was always kind of having to get up and move around and basically be, you know, a producer engineer and literally assistant engineer. I'd go move mics and this and that. So now. With this rewiring, I basically have everything mic'd up all the time. I've got all the guitars, amps mic'd up. I've got the vocal booth, right? i got the acoustic booth, and I've got everything mic'd up because, honestly, I don't have to move around all the God darn time when I'm trying to make a record. Uh, and so, uh, ultimately, the next week or two, I'm going to set up a new template for my studio so that when you um, open up a session, everything is ready to record 100% all the time. So it's like, what do you want to do? Acoustic? Click. Let's go. What do you want to do? Vocal? And so, to me, it just... I was, uh, I think, in denial or just, you know, dragging my heels at having to admit to the fact that I'm going to be back to where I started, which is doing everything myself. And I just, I guess I didn't really want to do that. I I liked the idea of having, you know, engineers working with them and, and you know, bouncing ideas back and forth and being able to step back and kind of see the overview a little bit uh, easier and better, you know, by, because I'd, I'd have, I used to have two rooms going uh, simultaneously. I'd have like our back room. You know, I got an engineer back there. He'd be working on vocals i have the guy at the front working on guitars and then during the oar record we actually had their rig in my um kind of you know eating lounge area so i would have three rigs going i could just bounce back and forth through all the rooms and really kind of move relatively efficiently and and quickly and excitingly but um you know i just finally had to admit well (laughs) that's not gonna happen so so that's really why i rewired the place and got rid of the board i just needed to have everything set up all the time and uh, make it a little easier for myself
0: Hope you're enjoying our interview with Mr. Matt Wallace today. Just want to take a time out to talk about Audio-Technica for a second. Now, you do know if you've been listening to the podcast for uh, the last couple couple sessions, the last couple episodes, that Audio-Technica has a deal going on where if you buy one of the 40 Series microphones, you get a free pair of uh, ATH M50 uh, headphones, the M50 headphones, as I like to say. One thing that we're going to do, I'm teaming up with uh, Nina Michella from Bird and Egg Studios. We are going to do some samples of some of those microphones. We contacted Audio-Technica and said, you know, just in an effort to get people a little bit of a, a, a glimpse into what some of these microphones sound like, in in some situations, obviously, not every situation is the same, why don't you send us some of the microphones, and we sent them a list and said, here's here's the microphones we want, and here's you know what we want to record with them and uh, we'll make those files available for download. So uh, Nino and I are going to be working on that. Look for that soon. But in the meantime, uh, go on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the the Audio-Technica banner there on the right side, and that will take you to the page where you can get all the information about how to get the headphones, the registration uh, URL, and all that. But you want to make sure that uh, you do it before December 31st, and I've said it before, do that if you if you plan on buying some mics, do it before December 31st so you can write it off on next year's taxes. Get those free headphones, get that set up, and um, more information to come on these um, these samples that Nino and I are going to work on. And uh yeah, that's it. Uh 40 series microphones from Audio Technica. A lot of good choices there. 4033, 4047, 4050, 4060, 4080, 4081 and various uh permutations of that. For example, the 4050, there's also a stereo version, the 4050 ST. Yeah, lots of 40 series mics. So, be sure and check that out. Well, that's it. Let's get back over to uh Matt Wallace here on the Working Class Audio podcast. <music> Are you an in the box mixing guy? Uh,
1: yes and no. Uh, currently, I've got this uh, Audience Sumo, which is a, uh, you know, it brings in 16 uh, track uh, 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 analog output of my uh, 192s and it goes right into it and then it sums there. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so I've been doing that, but I also got this uh, Pure 2, uh, like high res, you know, uh, uh, D to A, A to D converter. So I'm going to start doing that too. So I'm going to have kind of the options of either summing in, in analog. And then coming out to the stereo two track or going straight into just all completely in the box uh, and just coming out with a two channel digital like that. So I'm going to kind of experiment with between going between the two of those. In
0: these times, like you, uh, was it last year you said was an oh, awful yeah, year financially? Oh, yeah, it terrible. Terrible. In those times, do you, have you ever considered stopping? Absolutely. In fact, uh, January and February of this year, I was going to
1: sell my gear. I would spoken to a bunch of peers and said, yeah, I'm going to sell my stuff. I talked to my friend Will and said, listen, you want to take over my studio space? And Because uh, frankly, I was tired. I was tired of working so hard for no money. And I figured, you know, for me, the only reason I haven't gone to teaching or becoming a plumber or whatever the hell I'd be doing is because I always felt I could make more money doing music. And last year, I absolutely made less than a plumber. I mean, my, my, my net Income was less than that, and I, and I thought, well, at this point in time, and also, the, look, if I worked, you know, eight hours a day, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's fine, I'll stay in music. But the fact of the matter is that most of us tend to work twelve-hour days and six-day weeks, and so when you kind of add up all those hours, that's seventy-two hours. That's almost a double week. I could work at McDonald's and at Burger King and make more money than I'm doing in music. You know, I just take two jobs because it's the same amount of hours. I'm still doing you know twelve-hour days and stuff like that. So. So yeah, at the beginning of the year, I was just like, you know, I had enough of people coming up and wanting me to do stuff on spec or, you know, I did a bunch of stuff where I did like a song for $1,000 all in, like, like, hey, can we do, you know, four songs for four grand, including mixing? It's like, so you want me to record everything, produce it and mix it, $1,000 a song, you know? And I did that for a little bit and I said, you know, this sucks. I'm going to go, I'll do something else. You know, if I'm going to make sucky money in music, I'd rather, you know, make equal money and go teach or do something else. So yes, I was going to sell all my gear. And it's always on my the back of my mind that uh, I don't know how long this is going to be a viable uh, profession for me. But this year's been really great, so we'll see how it goes. But you know, I, I had a really good year. Did the Faith the no More thing, mixed that, had all kinds of momentum. Get, did, had lots of interviews, had a lot of press and stuff like that. But it's interesting in that the the phone hasn't rung that much more, honestly, in spite of all that momentum. So I guess it's always on my mind to reconvene uh, at the beginning of the year and say, okay, am I going to do this for another year or not? So. Right now it's feeling pretty good, but, you know, I, I you know, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see.
0: <laughs> do you and Frank take an active approach to trying to get work uh, outside of LA or do you just concentrate on what's going on oh, there? No, it's always active wherever the work
1: is. I mean, I just did a three doors down record I did out in Nashville and I, I've always avoided travel for work because I've got family and we've got a bunch of health issues. So I've always had to stay home for years. I've turned down all kinds of projects because I just wouldn't move, go out of town, but finally got to a point where it was like, well, listen. I'm, if I'm going to stay in this business, I got to start traveling now. So that's what I did, and and was fortunate enough to work with the Three Doors Down guys, who were terrific, fiercely talented, great guys. I mean, it was it was a dream project. So that was good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm doing this project from Japan right now. I mixed another Japanese project a uh, few months ago. I'm working you know, did some work for these band from um, South America. I mean, just there's, there's all kinds of, you know, uh, this is yeah. I mean, I'm always yeah. Of course, we're always reaching out to people. You know see if anyone in England wants to hire me or I don't care. I'll I'll work, you know, on any project pretty much anywhere. I prefer to be at home if I can swing it, but if I have to go travel, I will do it. I mean, I certainly mix a lot of stuff from around, you know, around the world. That stuff is pretty easy to do where they just send you stuff and then you mix it and get your notes back and forth and do that. So that that can work pretty well. So, yeah, and we're we're actively, you know, I re, we reach out to, uh, you know, I, I have artists I want to work with. And so we reach out to them and say, hey, you know, Matt's interested if you guys are you know, looking for producers. So we're, actively trying to do that but it's just you know the the fact of the matter is that there's just a substantially smaller amount of money going into record labels that's just that's just well, at least as far as i can tell from certainly from from hard copy sales but even the streaming everything you know there's just less money per per quote-unquote unit right now yeah uh so i mean eventually i think it will turn around if everyone goes to spotify and everybody's paying for it then yeah but right now like you know i got you know young adult kids living at my house and uh you know they just they go to youtube and they watch it on youtube or they you know they go to you know we they have spotify accounts and stuff like that and but you know the youtube thing didn't doesn't pay anybody anything and that's where my son he just goes to YouTube here here's the song you know you know what <laughs> i mean i think youtube is, is starting to uh, talk about uh you know monetizing that but uh you know when you think about the fact in the old days people would buy stuff and now they just can go into youtube and check it out it's uh it's, you know there's less money going in so there's less money coming out to make records for the most part unless when you're in the tippy 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 top you know max martin dr luke echelon where they're making a ton of money because they're they're hitting the the big big hits you know
0: it's interesting you say that just young adult children getting stuff off of youtube uh, my kids are uh, 7 and 9 and my 9 year old is always on youtube i hear him on headphones listening to music and i'm like oh what what are you checking yeah. out and oh and that's how mm-hmm. you're Getting the yep. music. Fascinating.
1: Yep. Now that we're talking about this stuff, I just remembered something. Uh when I was going to school, I, I uh spent a couple of years at uh, St. Mary's College out there in Moraga before I went to Berkeley. And it, both at Berkeley and St. Mary's, I was involved in the radio station. I worked at CalEx at, at Berkeley and KSMC at uh in um Moraga. It's St. Mary's. And um I was a DJ there, and you know, we had these you know big, big wall of records, and we'd go there and we'd pull records out and we'd play stuff. My nephew Dustin is a DJ at St. Mary's College now and i and i he said hey you want to come check out the studio and so we went back to the old studio that i'd worked at and i was expecting it to look somewhat like it was it looked completely different than it, it it did when i worked there and basically it looked like a lounge there was like a couple of chairs and a table with a couple of microphones and that was it and i said you know okay so what do you i mean where are you getting your music and so he actually plays it from spotify on the air so so he just they just called it up on spotify hit play and there you go and that's how they do music and you know that's just completely different than the old days. We had to have records, you know.
0: That is insane. Yes, because I
1: looked in this room and it looked like a, a you know a waiting room for a doctor's office because there was nothing in there. There was no turntables, no you know. You used to have consoles with big knobs and meters and you know and all this stuff and you know boom microphone stands, all this kind of crap and and so now it's really much more of a you know it's, it looks like a lounge. You got a couple of mics and people sit there and talk and they play stuff off Spotify and there you go and it's just a completely different
0: you know, world. Appreciate your, your honesty and and directness because uh, it's very telling to hear somebody of your caliber who's done the records you've done speak this honestly about this. And and man, I'm kind of like, wow, you're, you're, you're a super talented man. I mean, I can't imagine you stopping.
1: Uh, Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's look, I'm not stopping because I particularly want to, but I think at a certain point in time, you have to kind of look realistically at the hours you put into a job and look, we all do music cause we love it. I never, again, as I said, I never ever imagine I make a living at it. It just didn't enter my head. You know, when, now that you have a family, you have to think about, okay, well I need, you know, cause look, if I was by myself, I could live in my car and, and work in music, you know, it'd be great. Oh yeah. I'll sleep in my car. Who cares? But you know, I've got a wife and kids and college. And so it's like, well, I have to look at things realistically. And, uh, if I'm not making money in music, then I really should go into something else cause it just doesn't, uh, make make any sense uh, you know it's interesting we're, we're, you know, we're talking about honesty and stuff like that um i'm for the most part self-taught i bought a bunch of gear and i put it together and i blew things up and learned to wire things up and built things and did all this stuff to, and you know anyway so but i did take a class uh, i took one at los badanos college and i and i and i took one over at uh, dvc with uh this guy named dave porter who had a studio called music annex and this is you know 25 27 years ago maybe no, maybe even longer mm-hmm. than that. Because I was already, I already had my e track, I was already making records in my parents' garage. But I figured, oh, I'd take a class and and learn some stuff from Dave Porter. And so I was out there and and I remember at that, you know, I was probably, you know, twenty-four at the time. I'd said, uh, I go, hey, you know, Dave, what do you think? You know, I really want to get in this business. He goes, Don't do it. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, Ah, oh, it's a terrible business. You know, it's hard to make money, it's too competitive. And I was like, God, that's pretty harsh, you know. But of course I ignored what he said and I went and I did it. And I was, you know, relatively successful. Well, recently I've been doing interviews, like a podcast like yours, or a lot of interviews you know, for different magazines and such because of the Faith and the More stuff. And, and people ask me, like, would you recommend young people to get into the music business? I said, don't do it because there's no money in it. And interestingly, Dave Porter read one of my interviews and he said, yeah, it's really fascinating because I had told you not to do it. You're one of my few students who actually was somewhat successful. And now you're telling other people not to do it. And I said, yeah, well, the difference is, is that I think there was actually an industry when you told me not to do it. It was competitive, but there was an industry and that supported people as engineers, producers, assistants, whatever. I said, now that industry's really kind of fallen by the wayside. And I think it's more realistic to say, you know, eh, I'm not sure if you want to consider it. I mean, look, even, even if I look, when I, a few years ago when Sound City was existing, I could open my studio door mm-hmm. and I could see if they were busy or not. And that was a studio that I used to work at. I would they would I would walk out there and look in the parking lot, there'd be three weeks go by where nobody was working at Sound City. Sound City where Nirvana was recorded, Tom Petty, Rage Against the Machine, Fleetwood Mac, Slipknot, Ronnie James Dio. I mean this long list of artists, and Sound City would be sitting dead. And that was like that was kind of the uh tolling of the bell, like, okay, wait a second, people are not using big studios anymore. If they're not using big studios anymore, they're not gonna be using you know, established producers, mixers, engineers as much because they can do this stuff on their own in their own homes, you know, and so it's just that kind of thing where you have to be realistic, you know, as much as you love something, you have to go, okay, well, can I do this, you know, for a living? So, you know, this year has been great. I've I've had a terrific year. I've had, you know, it's just been solid, you know, great artists, good income, everything has been really good, so we'll see, you know, and and I and I actually invested, you know, be, at the beginning the I was going to sell all my crap, now of course I've reinvested, bought all this cabling, and you know, new gear, and you know, repainted the place, and you know, I've actually put money into it, and my friends like, dude, that's pretty interesting. You put all this time and energy if you're going to be getting out of the business in January, <laughs> 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 you know. But I'm I'm banking that I'm going to have another year at it at least, and then we'll
0: see where it goes from there, you know. With regards to equipment, do you try to keep a lid on the money put into uh, it at absolutely. this point?
1: There's no reason to put money into pour more money into. It. I've already got. Let me put it this way: I've already got enough gear to make records, and I've already been making records with this gear. I, I don't really have to buy more stuff, which is one of my frustrations with Pro Tools because. I'm supposed to go up to Pro Tools eleven now because I've got Pro Tools ten and it's gonna cost me what like seven grand or something to go up to Pro Tools eleven. It's not gonna change any of my sonics it will not improve any of my records it will not improve anything except that I have to upgrade if I want to stay current with Pro Tools you know so for me it's like uh, okay here okay here's this is the most important thing I'm gonna say in the entire interview so any of you listeners who've been kind of like washing dishes or you know watering the dog um, what you record is more important than how you record. That's it. That's, that's, that's the, all that's all the information I have. What you record is more important than how you record. If you have someone who's got a point of view and they have something they really want to say, they got to get it out of them, it's going to sound great. If you, you know, I've, I've seen it happen where you get a fantastic drum kit, properly mic'd, and I go play it, it sounds like crap. You get a crappy drum kit, sketchily mic'd up, and you get a really good player, sounds fantastic. It's all about the singer's contact with the instrument. I mean, the the musician's contact with the instrument, his or her fingertips, it's about the way they hold the instrument. It's the way the singer, he or she projects, and what they do and what they have to say. That is 90% of the sound. And I know most engineers are going to get all upset, and everyone's going to be... Because I've been on panels like this where I've talked about this kind of stuff, and people get upset who buy a bunch of gear. It's really the musician. And the way they, they contact their instrument with the drumstick or their fingertips uh, is what makes great music. And you can go back to Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill album and listen to that record. Holy crap. Some of the most sketchy sonic aspects ever in recorded history. I know because Glenn Ballard started those as demos on ADATs. And you can hear there's digital distortion on some of her vocals. And you know what? Civilians don't even care. They don't even hear that stuff. They just were moved by her lyrics and what she was saying. That record sold, like, what, 17 million records in the States now or something like that? And it's really, you need someone who's got something to say, and they really got to get it out there. And, and, you know, Bob Dylan's voice, pretty sucky. Neil Young's voice, pretty sucky, technically. But what they have to say and and how they write their lyrics and what they're trying to put across is what's really great about them. And this is true of so many musicians. They don't have to be fantastic musicians, quote-unquote, or studied or schooled. They just need to really have a point of view They have to have the balls or the guts to step up and want to express it, you know. And that's really what everything... Look, when I talk to bands, I go, all we're doing is peddling emotion. That's all we're doing. When we're here, all this stuff we're doing, all these guitar pedals and all this crap, all these mic preamps, we're just peddling emotion. We just want to sell or convey emotion to someone. So when they put on the headphones or they're listening to their music, you want to make them cry or laugh or sing or want to drive their car fast, or you want them to kind of hear some of themselves in the lyrics and what you're trying to put across. And, And sometimes. You know, music is completely and totally just entertainment. That's all it is, and sometimes it's actually essential. And I truly believe that there are days that a song will stop someone from committing suicide. That's it. You know, I think there. Are, I, I think a, there are moments where, really, if you have someone who's singing, someone that they've been to that place where they've stood and looked over the edge, and you have a listener going, "Holy crap, that person's been there, and they're still here." So maybe I'll stick around for one more day. That's when music is absolutely essential.
0: That's a very powerful thanks, statement. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. It was. And you know, in. <sighs> it's, we live, our, our recording business is a very gear centric yeah. thing. And for me personally, you know, when I see like, okay, you could go out and buy a, a vintage this or a vintage that and really go into Hawk mm-hmm. and for, for it, you know, and I'll just drag one of our sponsors or both of our sponsors into it and just, and, and I, and, and I say this with sincerity and it's not just trying to plug the sponsors either, but you know, if you look like, a, if you look at a company like Audio Technica right who makes fantastic Absolutely. mics. And you look at, you look at universal audio yeah. and you look at like the fact that they are basically digitally recreating all of this vintage mm-hmm. gear. It's like, for me as a guy with two kids in a struggling music right. business, I feel like I'd rather invest, uh, a modest amount of money into those kinds of products than go so deep into debt. Yeah for vintage stuff that I only have one or sure. two of, and I always have to keep it up and repair yeah. it. It's just, it makes more sense to me to to have that kind of workflow. And I know that a lot of people listening are going to be like, what the fuck are you right. talking about? Well,
1: I mean, I want to say thanks to those guys, to Audio Technica and Universal Audio for providing the platform for us to even discuss this stuff. And do I do appreciate the, the work they did because... Uh, you know, Universal has got some really really cool sounding stuff, and uh, Audio Technica has got some great mics, and those are tools certainly that help us accomplish what we're trying to do. So I do appreciate that stuff. In fact, Audio Technica is how I got started with my first studio, is That I couldn't afford all the more expensive things, and and Audio Technica saved my butt uh, early on, and I had great mics that I could get for cheap. So I had to get a, give a I, shout I, out. I just
0: think I think they're just totally working class all the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, I guess, but I, so. I couldn't afford all the expensive stuff. Uh, that's what I turned to. So I think those are. It's nice having companies like that that afford ability for young uh, musicians and producers to get started. And they're sponsoring this uh, thing here, so that's really cool. Like, here's I don't the know. Thing. This is uh, this is going to burst a lot of people's bubbles. Are you ready for this? Okay, go, go so for everyone, it. Everyone wants you know those vintage guitar sounds and drum sounds from say from like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, et cetera, et cetera. Guess what? Those instruments were not vintage when they played them. They were brand new. Ringo's drums were brand new in '66 and '67. When he played them on record. They're vintage now, and we like that idea that vintage is good. And yes, of course, Oldwood is definitely nice, but come on, man, pick up a guitar and play it. And, you know, seriously, Keith Richards, when he was playing those guitars, they were made that year, you know, maybe a couple years earlier. They weren't vintage. And if people get stuck on this whole vintage thing that's going to actually save their ass or make them better. It's like, you know what? I've seen great musicians pick up the crappiest instrument and just make them sing. And and it, it just doesn't even matter, man. You just got to just, it's just about your guts and what you're trying to put across, man. Just just lay it out there and, and, and connect. I mean, you know, I tell people, look, the only reason that we have music is because we we want to convey things that we don't really want to talk about or they're too deep to talk about. That's why we dance. That's why we write poetry. That's why we paint. That's why we have, you know, symphonies. That's why we make music. That's why we, whatever we do artistically, it is only to convey things that are difficult to access at times, you know, and 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 so that it's that that common emotional c- content and contact that we have between people is what makes it work. And I even joke with my friends, like when you go to movies and they start playing that kind of sappy romantic music, that's really just a secret cue for the guy to go, oh wow, I better put my arm around my gal right now and kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, whoo, wow, that's really whoo, you know, that's really emotional, you know, because you know. I'm being humorous about it, but it's really you know, guys. It's it's difficult for guys sometimes to kind of just uh, be forthright and honest and talk about things like that. And so, with music, you can actually you can actually sing stuff that you can actually say to your you know friends, family, lovers, friends, whatever. You know, you can actually stuff like wow, that's really powerful. You know, and uh, and look, if we can just plug, if I we we can just plug our brain into someone else's brain and convey the emotion, we'd do it. And music is just a medium; it's just a way of getting the stuff across. You know, that's all it is. Just. Just a vehicle. That's all it is. And same thing with painting and all that. You know, the, the, if the art, of the if Van Gogh could have just sat us each down and just whispered in our ear what he was trying to convey, we'd just do it. It'd be great. But 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 he made these paintings, and they still resonate with us today, just like great music does, or poetry, you know, or amazing stories. I mean, there's there's such creativity out there. It's 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 really fascinating and to me. That's the one time that that humans really can can get and operate their highest frequency and really do something beautiful is 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 in the in the arts i mean truly honestly you know and uh what was that winston churchill quote yeah when they were talking about um during world war ii i guess people were talking like listen you know we need all this money for the war effort we need to take money out of our of our arts um right now and dump it into the military infrastructure because uh you know we need to we need more money for guns and tanks and bombs and he's like and he's like, look if we take money out of the arts then what are we fighting for i mean that's that's it you know you oh know, yeah it's like <laughs> you know, we're, we're fighting to keep the arts. We're, we're fighting to keep the humanity and the, and, you know, the emotionality and the, and the deep resonant connection we can have between each other. And that's the whole deal, you know? So I anyway, know music is really fascinating, you know?
0: So in the, in the context of, of a very, um, gear centric, uh, business, when it comes to our engineering brothers and sisters, yes. we'll say, yes. um, I guess, uh, you seem to be conveying, pay, pay more attention to the artists.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I've got gear. I don't have a pile of gear, and I can run down some of the, the stuff I have. I mean, yeah, it's, like you really only need, uh, because we're working in multiple mono these days, and we're not really tracking bands live anymore like we I, I wish we were, but if you have your own studio, you just need like one or two really good mic preamps and a couple of good compressors and a couple of good mics, and there you go, oh, wait, here's a storage for you. Oh, I got a good... This is going to really rankle a bunch of gearhead people. I, I uh, <laughs> uh, some years ago I went to guitar center. I, I wanted to get a couple of cheap mics, so I got this um, MXL 990, which is made in China. There's this. It's like a. It's a large diaphragm mic, and you get a little pencil diaphragm mic you get for ninety nine dollars. And I bought this mic, and it's like ah, oh, sounds kind of good. I would put up all my good mics, and I would do a blind listening test where I'd have my engineer record the vocalist, and I, so I wouldn't know what mic is what because as soon as you label it, this is the Neumann, this is that. People will make all kinds of decisions by the name of the mic. So as we did this whole thing, we and we did this MX990. And I did this on multiple projects where I we kept picking that mic and it would really piss me off because that mic literally, you can buy them now for like 69 bucks. And it's like, God, I have all these expensive mics. Why the hell do I keep picking this stupid mic? It just, it just worked. And so I had a friend of mine who was kind of a gearhead, and you know, he's like, Oh man, MXL990, that's a piece of crap made in China. I, I go, he goes, What do you think? How does it sound? I go, you know what? It sounds great on the radio. He goes, what are you talking about? I go, that's the mic I use for OAR's song Shattered, which is a huge selling song. It was on the radio all over the damn place, and it's that 990 MXL mic that we record his vocal on, and it sounds great. And, you know, I don't want people to get stuck on this whole idea that it's got to be expensive to be good, you know. And, and, just, and just go with your ears. Oh, here, here's another thing, too. If I were in charge of the universe, all mixing boards would not have any indication of what frequency you're using and how much you're boosting or cutting.
2: And do you know why? <laughs> yeah.
1: Because what you do is you just yeah. turn the knob until it sounds great. And if you're if you're boosting 12 dB at 3K, who cares? If you're if you're notching out, you know, 10 dB at 70 hertz, who cares? It doesn't matter. And I know from my own experience when I would work on mixing consoles, I would go and I have a certain frequency that I thought I liked. So it's like, oh yeah, I like stuff around 3K. I just really want to boost 3K on all these things. But it wasn't musical and I wasn't actually listening to the sound. If you listen to the sound, and you just turn the knob. You shouldn't even know how much you're you're adding or boosting at what frequency, because it should just sound good. And a lot of people get into this like, oh my god, you can't put too much in, too much EQ. Oh my god, you can't do that. Or, or do is it okay if I'm doing this? It's like, yeah, does it sound good? All right, you know, no one's gonna come by with their little notepad and check off like, oh, I don't know, this guy went three dB over here on this uh, this seven uh, K thing. I'm not sure if we can let this go to the radio. You know, it's like they don't care about that stuff. Just, I mean, people got to just go with their guts, man. Go with your guts. It sounds good. Do it. You know, that's my thing. And yes, oh. in good gear, look, good gear is important. Yeah, okay, it's important, but I don't want to get hung up on it because I think it's about the
0: musicians first and foremost. Man, I, I, I love your Thanks. philosophy. I mean, look at, look at, look I, at
1: Jimmy Page. You know, he uh, played Dan Electros on some of that stuff, you know. Those are made out of, you know, Bakelite and a bunch of other stuff thrown together. They're technically not great guitars, but man, you get someone who can play it. There you go man. <laughs> and I, by the way, by the way, I come from a, I'm initially a musician, quote unquote. And then I got into engineering. So I'm, I'm from an engineering school and yes, I want to make good sounding records, but I'm also have the overview now. i also produced and mixed and done all this stuff. And I, I think I know what I believe to be essential.
0: What's your primary instrument?
1: Well, I'm not necessarily good at anything. I play guitar. That's the thing I started playing. I was in bands and I got started because I was the guy in the band who decided to record our band for posterity. So I'd be like, Let's hook up this cassette deck, record our band. Then I ran through my little mono PV mixer, and we'd play the cassette back, and then we'd sing and record on another cassette deck. And then I had a four-track studio in my parents' garage. Then I built an eight-track studio. So yeah, guitar player initially. Uh, when I was going to Berkeley, I was um uh and in, in St Mary's College, I was playing drums in one band, guitar in another, and bass in another. You know, I'm not I'm not I'm not a musician. I'm I'm a I'm a collector of instruments, and I can kind of dabble on them and and play some things here and there. But I'm not you know. I don't really consider myself a musician having worked with people who really are musicians. I'm, you know, I'm a guy who can play some instruments on occasion, <laughs> you know? Wow. But I know, I know chords. I can, you know, when I help people with arrangements and pre-production and stuff, like I can, you know, do different chord voices. I mean, I can play, I'm just not, you know, I'm just,
0: I'm a producer. And one final uh, parting thought, because yes. we're, we're just about out of time, yeah. but what's your pre-production approach and philosophy? Well, it depends on what era we're
1: talking about, but in, in the, Olden days, when we were dealing with uh, two track, 20, uh, two inch, twenty four track tape, I would always advocate for a good two weeks of pre production, and to me, it was essential to really take the songs and work on them diligently before you get in the studio and start spending a bunch of money. And I, I never had giant, giant budgets. You know, I, I talked to some other producer who was like, I remember we used to have $350,000 to make a record. I'm like, really? I don't think I ever topped out ever past like, you know, $150,000 in, in my best years, you know. And people w- would spend that kind of money all the time. Oh, a quarter of a million all the time. I was like, oh, man, you guys are lucky. So I always had, you know, like, oh, oh, F- Faith the More original budget, sixty five dollars Rune 5's original budget, sixty five grand. So yeah, pre-production is really important because you can work on the songs and so you really can, uh, you know, try different keys, try different tempos, different rhythms, different parts. And so you are you have some kind of map before you go in the studio to at least know where you think you're going. And then, of course, you can always change the journey once you're there, but at least have a some kind of ideas. I think it's really important to do that. It's very cost effective. It's also good to kind of get everyone kind of rallying around together and to kind of look at this thing together. Like, And you're really talking about like, okay, is this... Is this idea good? Is this, and then you really have to open the conversation. That's really the biggest uh, aspect of pre-production. Uh, so I'm a big, big fan, big, big advocate of that. Oftentimes, pre-production now in the digital age means people bring in their demos and we start building from that. You know, it's like they'll give me the demo and I'll um, edit it and I'll move it around and I'll do some arrangement stuff and go, here's where I think we should go with the song. And then we start, you know, recording or re-recording things. So they're they're both pretty pretty different um, approaches. But I'm a huge fan. In fact, when I work with bands, even like heavy rock bands or whatever spent 30, 40 percent on acoustic guitars. We just sit down and we play quietly. You don't need to beat your ears up. And and I said, look, if we can hear a song on acoustics, then it's going to sound pretty good once we get into rock land and you guys start playing drums. But I found that, you know, just the, the sheer volume of a band playing and the drums are pounding and you got the guitars. Sometimes you can be fooled into the fact that you got a really good song like, oh, my God, it sounds so powerful and it's so loud and Wow, you know, and uh, it's like, well, that's cool, man. But listen, let's play on acoustic guitars. What do we got? Oh, look, it's the same chords in the verse and the chorus. Can we do something about that? You know, you can hide behind dynamics if you want, and it works to have the same chords through a whole song if you can make you know, the chorus be louder or have more stuff happen there. But what if we change some chords, you know? What if we change the last two chords of the verse so that when we get to the chorus, it sounds like we're in a new place, even though it's the same chords that we had in the verse, you know? Some simple, subtle things like that can make a world of difference, I think, in, in making really good music.
0: Yeah, and I, I think doing pre-production uh, on acoustic guitars can also... I don't know it gives you a little bit different perspective and maybe opens up other ideas that wouldn't come in a full blast yeah. guitar based drums uh pre-pro session. Yeah,
1: it can't. For me my ears always hurt. I always have to wear earplugs, you know, it's like it's so loud and, you know. And if you have a great drummer, by the way, if you have a great drummer, man, I get fooled into into thinking we have great songs all the time, you know. You just hear someone who can really play, you know, same plays as a bass player and guitar player too, but you go, "Man, this thing sounds great," you know. But but you, when, you, when you sit down you play on acoustic and I cuz I well, here's what I like to tell people I go, "Listen, all your songs. Let's make it so you can actually play it around a campfire, and even if you have the same chords, what if we just work on inversions? What if you play the same chords of the whole damn song, but you do a slightly different inversion for the for the course? You invert up one or two inversions, then you can play at a campfire, and your song will still work. and I, And I really strive to have our songs do that. You know, I I really really work on that kind of concept. And um, you know, in fact, speaking of P production. Rune Five's first record, they had really good demos. Verse 1, chorus 1, verse 2, chorus 2. Man, these are really good. And then after chorus 2, they would just kind of meander out to the end of the song. And it would just kind of like, you know, twiddle, we'd twiddle our thumbs. And and I said, you know, you guys, if you guys write some bridges, you can have some classic songs that might actually stand the test of time that people might want to cover in the future. But, but you need that moment where people can't imagine the song getting any better past chorus 2 and actually steps up and becomes this thing that's really special. And that's that's those are big things to talk about in pre production where you go, you know, what can we do to make this like really really great? And that was one of my biggest contributions to that record was just saying, listen, bridges, man. And so in the two weeks of pre production, they wrote bridges, and those are some terrific bridges on those songs, like on this love and and she would be loved, and that, that those came out in in, in, in pre production. It's really makes a big difference.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic, yeah, man. Thank you, man. You're really, uh, you, you've been an excellent thank guest.
1: You. Well, I'm uh, certainly. Uh, wordy. I mean, certainly to talk about it, but I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I've been doing this for a while, so, and I'm also very passionate about it, but thank you.
0: Thanks. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for being on Matt. Thanks. This has been awesome. And, and uh I look forward to bringing it to everybody on, on uh, Monday. Good. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the
1: opportunity. Thank you so much for thinking of me uh, to do this. It's, it's pretty awesome. So I appreciate
0: it. And good questions too, by the way. Oh, thank Thanks. you. Thank you. All right, All right Matt, take care. Thanks. And uh yeah. Good luck with this record, with this band. Thanks so much. All right, Matt. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. bye Bye-bye. Well, there it is, Matt Wallace here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. What a pleasure to speak to him and uh, very generous of his time in spite of the fact that he's in the middle of a record. All right, well, we're out of time, so just want to make sure you do know that our music is provided by Cliff Truesdell, and our voiceover intro is Chuck Smith, and our social media and additional audio support is provided by Cole Williams. And, of course, I want to thank our sponsors, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Gearsluts.com. But of course, I want to thank you for listening and taking the time out of your day to listen to me rant. Till next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear